Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is many, many things. He's an intelligent analyst. He's a former deputy assistant to President Donald Trump, radio host, now TV host of the Gorka Reality Check, and of course, author of this book, The War for America's Soul. Dr. Sebastian Gorka, welcome to Trigonometry. Cheers, guys. Just call me Seb, please. We will do, Seb. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, that is probably the longest intro we've ever done, but let's let's make it a bit longer. Tell us a little bit about who are you, what has been your journey through life, how do you find yourself sitting here talking to uh, two very problematic people like us? Uh, yeah, you mean two bigots. Um, yes. yeah. <laughs> let, let me start with, 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 with something else first. So I And don't take this the wrong way, guys. I am just stunned that it takes a Jewish kid from Russia and a half Venezuelan Brit to have what I consider to be one of the most substantive podcasts anywhere. You, you are the interesting, serious Joe Rogans, and you keep me sane, guys. So God bless both of you. It's very kind. Thanks, Seb. That is very, very kind, Seb. And being a British person, that was a compliment, and I really don't know how to deal with it apart from offer... <laughs> A kind of thinly veiled insult, uh, but you're going to turn him back to drink at this rate. Yeah, is what's exactly. Happen. I, I, and on top of that, on top of that, I do not, having grown up in the UK, knowing the relationship the Brits have to alcohol, and I know it's been a tough year under COVID. So I don't want to encourage more drinking. But I have to say, the recent roar that you guys did, Langard, was hilarious, mm -hmm. even funnier than usual. And I do think, I do think, FF, you should write that book that Keto is for slags. That, that cookbook <laughs> sh should be written. All right. Um, so, so you realize so this I? is going out to the real public now, right? <laughs> All right. So, so who's Seb Gorka? Um, I was born in the UK to parents who escaped communist Hungary in the revolution in 1956. Um, my dad actually being liberated from a political communist prison by the freedom fighters. He was arrested, tortured, and imprisoned, and uh, first actually betrayed by Kim Philby uh, in MI6. Got a life sentence at the age of 20, liberated, escaped with her, the 17-year-old uh, daughter of a fellow prison mate across the minefields into Austria and then over to the UK. Those are my parents. Um, how am I where I am today? Why do I believe what I believe? There's a story in one of my books. Um, we were on the beach uh, on holiday when I was a kid, maybe seven, eight years old. My dad came out of the ocean. They tried to break him as a man, but they didn't break him physically or, or mentally. He came out of the ocean after a swim. And like a dumb kid, I asked him a question about these lines I saw on his wrist. And I said, Dad, what are those? Because he was too, too young to be wrinkled. Without skipping a beat, he... Uh, he, without emotion, said, son, that's where the secret police bound my wrists together behind my back with wire so, so they could hang me from the ceiling of the torture chamber. That's when my life changed inexorably. That's when I realized that, you know, concepts like evil aren't just from Grimm's Tales or Hansel and Gretel. It, evil is real. It walks the earth. 
and communism is the most evil ideology we've ever seen. And so I've dedicated my professional career to um, national security. I worked in the uh, U.S. Defense Department teaching irregular warfare counterterrorism. Met my American wife in Europe teaching a counterterrorism program after 9-11. And then eventually ended up here. Um, we moved to America in 2008, hoping we would leave socialism behind us in Europe. Sadly, uh, America elected Obama. Uh, and then we had to suffer under that. And then eventually, um, I wrote a couple of books on the threat of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. One of them got to the attention of candidate Donald Trump. And to cut a, 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 a longer story, slightly shorter, uh, I ended up in the White House in the first year of the Trump administration as deputy assistant and strategist to Donald Trump. My, my thing is grand strategy, national security, and just fighting totalitarians wherever we see them, whether it's global jihadists or whether the, it's the pervade of critical race theory now here in the United States. And Seb, uh, you are probably as far onto the MAGA train as we've gone in terms of our interviews. And as you know, neither Francis or I were particularly big fans of your former employer. Uh, we are some, we politically are probably far to the left of you in terms of being in the centre. Um, but what we really wanted to talk to you about, rather than going 12 rounds with you on some tweet that Donald Trump did or whatever, <laughs> we can talk about that a little bit later, perhaps in a more, you know, more nuanced way. Uh, what we wanted to talk to you about is what Donald Trump represented. When I think of Donald Trump, the image I see as a sort of Viking berserker breaking through a wall uh, and taking all the first arrows. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily the guy you want your daughter to bring home, uh, you know, but, but, but sometimes they can be necessary, even though it's not necessarily the nicest guy, if you like. Um, what do you think his election represented, first of all? Well, I, I like that, that description of a berserker. One of the regular guests on my radio show who I consider to be one of the greatest minds alive today is Victor Davis Hansen. And, and he, he gave a presentation about, you know, the need of the Ajax, the need of the patent, the, the, these uncivilized individuals that are needed from time to time to actually save civilization. And I very much see uh, my former boss, Donald Trump, in, in that light. So what happened in 2016? Um, I, I don't know about you guys. I love to read. I collect, I, I have, a, uh, you know, two, uh, serious health conditions. I can't walk past a bookstore without buying a book and or past a gun store without buying a gun. So I love to collect guns. I love to collect books. I don't, however, read autobiographies. I have no patience for these, you know, 900 page books on what Eisenhower had for breakfast you know, on February the 12th, 1945. However, in the past 20 years, I've read two autobiographies that changed my life. One of them we can talk about later is uh, Andrew Breitbart's Righteous Indignation, which is a, a, he called himself a thoughtless drunk leftist and his journey to conservatism uh, and his chapter six. If, if your viewers, your really informed viewers want to understand how we got to where we are today with the whole of the British establishment trying to stop Brexit with the whole of the US establishment on both sides trying to stop Trump. You've got to read chapter six of Breitbart's Righteous Indignation. But the other book, which is crucial, I mean, utterly seminal to understanding what happened here in 2016, is um, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Now, J.D. Vance, was not, he was not a fan of Donald Trump. He, is, he has become more MAGA in recent years, given the cancel culture. 
But his story of how he grew up as the scion of an Appalachian clan, working class Americans from the hills, hillbillies, who came from a culture that had a future, could get jobs in the factories, could feed their, their kids, to a, a, a subculture that was destroyed by left and right, betrayed by, by the Republicans and the Democrats for 50 years with their jobs shipped over to Asia, uh, riven with drug abuse. His mo- he, he grew up in a single mother household. Mother was a drug addict. That man's story of how he climbed out of that and the broader context of what the political elites had done to the working class is an eye-opener. And I'll express it with just one empirical data point. I find it amusing that you know, an immigrant to America with an accent has to constantly remind my fellow Americans what we actually did in 2016. Because from 1776 until 2016, we had 44 presidential administrations. Every stinking one of them was led by a member of the political elite, either a congressman, a senator, a former governor as president, or a retired general like Washington or Eisenhower. Every single president was a member of the inset. In 2016, 65 million Americans said, screw that. We want an utter outsider. And it sounds funny, you know, billionaire from Manhattan. But he was an outsider, hated by the establishment, not just the left, but the Republican establishment detested him, made fun of him. And we chose a man who'd never even run for any political office to the highest office of the land. So, you know, politics changed in a way in 2016, and and thanks in part, and I have to give you guys credit, it starts with Nigel and it starts with with Brexit. The the reassertion of representative government, which the left derisively calls populism, which is quite ironic because what does populism mean? It's popular with most of the people, which is kind of like a definition of democracy as far as I'm concerned, but it is this pejorative phrase today. So in 2016, uh, we, you know, the, the American people, black, white, working class, not working class, sent a message to this city behind me, enough, 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 it stops now. So it's a very, very good point that you're making. So really what you're saying is that the reason Trump got elected was because there was a backlash against globalization. Yeah. So let, let, let me let me talk about personal experience. So I flew with the president to Youngstown, Ohio on Air Force One. And Youngstown is called, it's called Steel Valley. It is one of the, 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 the epicenters of the steel industry as was. And we landed on a, on a military base because, you know, he had the convoy and the beast and everything else. He gets off the plane. We get into the convoy. It's about a 20-minute ride to the stadium where, where, you know, there's going to be a MAGA rally. This was in 2017. And it's fascinating. 20-minute drive. On the left-hand side, all we see, one after another, are these disused steel mills, these foundries that are decaying, empty. On the right-hand side, for 20 minutes, guys, we see kids, we see moms, we see out-of-work dads with their little American flags waving at the president's convoy. We get to the arena, 24,000, I mean, just packed arena, bosses in the back, I'm taking selfies with the people who are there. 
And I, it's clear to me, 99% of the people in this building are either former Democrats or their dads or their granddads were in the mill and they were working class Democrats. The billionaire from Manhattan walks out on the stage, actually it was the first lady and then, and then the president. And guys, I kid you not, you can watch the footage. Donald Trump, the billionaire from Manhattan, couldn't start his speech for minutes because the crowd was screaming, USA, USA, drain the swamp. This is in one of the hardest core Democrat strongholds in America. You're absolutely right. It was, a, it was an up yours to the globalists and their representatives on both sides of the political aisle who had screwed the people who built America for decades. That's what happened in 2016. And uh, Seb, I know what your answer to this question is going to be. So I'm just going to preempt it by saying I think we probably all three of us agree that if it weren't for COVID, Donald Trump wins again in 2020. Um, but the fact that he didn't win, the fact that this happened and uh, Joe Biden is now president, what does that mean for populism? Because I think the underlying sentiment, some of the the, the boil was lanced somewhat, the pus yeah. has run somewhat. Do you think... Now people will sort of, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't miss Donald Trump. I don't miss the rhetoric. I don't miss the constant outrage all the time about him. Do you think a lot of people will be like, okay, look, the elite got the, the shot across the bows. They're going to stop, as we say in England, taking the piss. <laughs> and, you know, we move on. Hopefully someone comes in who's, you know, going to adopt some of Donald Trump's policies that were popular with the very people you're talking about, but he'll be less obnoxious to the public, less, you know, different in terms of his behavior, uh, maybe like a Dan Crenshaw or someone of that sort of ilk. Uh, is that the way it's going to go? Or do you think that that boil never got properly lanced and it's just going to keep growing and then get lanced again? So here, here are the most important data points in, in the last four months or, or since since the election in the last seven months. 30% of Democrats, guys, 30% of the people who voted for Biden believe the election was fraudulent. That's a problem. I believe maybe 60 to 70% of Trump voters think it was stolen. So whether or not populism survives is one question. The other question is, does the majority of this nation's population actually believe in the fundamental uh, sacred right that we have to choose our own political leaders, whichever party they come from. We, we have a, a sucking chest wound. We have a lethal wound at the heart of our political structures that has to be fixed first before we can even get to the other questions of leading style and, 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 and policies. Secondly, if you look at the interests of the globalists, they are more powerful than they have ever been. They're pushing the envelope to such extremes, especially with critical race theory, that there's already a backlash. But what we've witnessed, think about this. In the first month, Biden wrote more than 100 executive orders. This is, these are things that don't go through the Senate. They're just you know decrees coming out of the White House. This is from a man who seven months prior during the debate said, only dictators rule by executive order. That's what he said, and that's what he's doing. How have the globalists fared since January the 20th and, and the inauguration? Bloody well. I mean, really well. 
The XL Keystone Pipeline, I'm getting into specifics here, but there was a pipeline that we built with Canada that was crucial to jobs in America. On the first day in office, he killed it. Donald Trump had made it possible. Biden killed it. On that one day, one day, 11,000 Americans lost their jobs. And, and Senator Kerry, who's now the climate czar for Biden, this arrogant shit who, who, who globe trots in his private jet, married into the Heinz family, has gone on record to say, yeah, well, uh, th- those oil rig workers, uh, they can get jobs in the solar industry. I mean, just classic, arrogant, elitist. Uh, yeah, I'm going to up sticks from Texas and move to you know Massachusetts with my family and my six kids. Uh, and not only that, when, when you talk to the Canadians, Lord Conrad Black, regular guest on my show, he says both sides of the political spectrum in Canada are, are apoplectic because it may be 11,000 jobs in America. In Canada, it was 36,000 jobs that were killed with that one executive order. So whether it's kowtang to China, whether it's allowing Russia to uh, have its Nord Stream uh, pipeline with Germany, um, whether it's bending over backwards to big tech, globalism is stronger than it ever was. And I I wrote a piece I sent you guys, and I know you don't want to talk about Trump exclusively, and I I get it, but... I I pray that he comes back in 2024 for one reason. We have some serious shit to fix in D.C. I mean, we have some real... I didn't use the phrase deep state when I joined the administration. I thought it was tinfoil hat kind of conspiracy theory. And then I saw it. Then I saw what they did to General Flynn. Then I saw what they did to, to Roger Stone and others. It's real. We have people who are seditious unelected subversives who are very powerful bureaucrats and who believe that their writ outweighs the writ of the electorate who chooses the president. So I want to see, in your words, uh, Constantine, I want to see that berserker back in the office and I want to see, I want to see a flamethrower applied to these people who think they're better than their fellow American so that we can actually get them out of these bureaucratic strongholds. Uh, and I don't care about the tweets. God, God bless him in his tweets. I, I think he prevented World War Three in North Korea with his tweets about Lil' Kim. We need a man. The, the, the delightful thing. And look, I, I went to a, a public school in West London. I spent 13 years in a Benedictine you know, school. Stiff upper lip, debating society, all that jazz. You think it wasn't hard? for me to get used to this guy because what you see is what you get he is a kid from queens he's not georgetown he's not manhattan he is a kid from queens it took me some getting used to but the greatest thing about donald trump in an era of rising unaccountable globalist bureaucracies is there are no sacred cows for this man He comes in, if he sees something that's wrong, whether it's our relations with Israel, whether it's the the working class being screwed, he goes about his darndest to fix it. So we need four more years of the berserker in the the White House, because otherwise, you're seeing it already. You're seeing, you know, all these swamp creature Republicans, 10 senators, uh, and then 23 uh, congressman who voted to impeach the, their own leader. They, they, they see Donald Trump as an anomaly, 
And as soon as he's gone, we can get back to business and we can scratch the Democrats' backs and they'll scratch ours. I don't want that. I want representative government for as many of the people who live here, irrespective of their class or their skin color. And, and the stunning thing about Donald Trump is he wanted only two things. And you don't have to take my word for it, but, but guys, but if you're watching, read my books. I'll give you my testimony. He wanted two things for everybody in America. If you're here legally, he wants you to be safe and he wants you to prosper. And the remarkable thing is he wanted that for you whether or not you voted for him. That is not the attitude of the Democrats who right now, and I'd love to talk about this, are criminalizing conservatives. How do I know that? January the 6th, we had people trespass on Congress. They didn't kill anybody. They didn't shoot anybody. There are people on trespass charges who have been sitting in federal jails just behind me in solitary since January. That happens in a police state. And nobody from BLM or Antifa has been sitting in solitary for five months. That's what really keeps me awake at night. So, sorry, but this, you know, with my background, this stuff really gets to me. Right, but you say that, Seb, but surely, you know, what they did was incredibly serious. Incredibly no, they, no, they need to pay the price. Don't get me wrong. If you went in there, if you nicked, you know, Nancy Pelosi's laptop, if you broke up somebody's office, get charged in front of a jury of your peers and pay the penalty. But but hang on a second. When Kamala Harris is raising bail money for Antifa activists to get let out of prison, but somebody who trespassed and broke a window is in solitary confinement for five months, that's not, that's not, that's not equality before the law. That is the use of the police as a police state for political purposes. They need to be punished, but they don't need to be punished for political reasons. Mm. Well, uh, look, there's an argument to be had there, sir, because what they did was also an, a political act because it was an attempt to stop a vote from happening uh, in, in, in Congress, right? So Right, right, but we, but we don't have a system that is meant to do political policing. It's yeah, a no, I agree. Charge. Look, look the BLM for double standard charge. is is very is something you and I and all three of us probably agree on. So we, we don't need to get into that. And if right. people are sitting in solitary, which I actually didn't know for all this time, right. that sounds wrong to me on right. on the surface. But look, I, I take it if you don't mind me saying. By the way, you avoided my question about populism. That you do think it's run out of steam. I, I don't think it's run out of steam. Um, I, I think there are forces, there are retrenchment of forces that want to undermine populism. And I think there's a lot of people, and I see this, you know, the callers to my show and what have you who say, that's it, they stole it, I'm never voting again. Th that that's a really disturbing attitude. And I tell them, really, you, you've given up on America? What, what would the founding fathers say who, who took on the, the British Empire? That's, that's a very un-American attitude. I think populism, the, the, the rejection of globalism is alive. It's like, I think you were talking to somebody, one of your guests. It's, you know, once you voted Brexit, once you voted anti-establishment, I think maybe you made this point, or maybe Francis, once you've gone no, anti-establishment once, 
you're not going to go back, right? Well, once you've said up yours to the establishment, even if you're a Labour voter all your life, once you vote against Labour because you see them as the establishment now, you're not going to suddenly bounce back. So I think that the, the populist sentiment is out there amongst the, the 74, 75 million people that, that voted for Donald Trump. But there are these very, very powerful forces of the rhinos, the Republicans in name only, the establishment politicians who say, ah, flash in the pan, he's an irrelevance, let's get back to the old way of doing business. So I I am worried for populism, uh, and I don't see, outside of maybe the governor of Florida, I don't see a lot of people who have that, you know, balls to the wall, you know, bulldog spirit and want to fight, fight the the globalists. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Well, if you do, then EasyDNS are the company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, deplatform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows a bit about that. So will you in a second. EasyDNS have rock solid network infrastructure and incredible customer support. They're in your corner, no matter what the world throws at you, unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. You'd know about that. <laughs> Move your domains and websites over to EasyDNS right now. All you've got to do is head over to EasyDNS.com forward slash Triggered and use our promo code, which is, of course, Triggered as well, and you will get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, that tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. But Seb, isn't the problem also as well that, you know, we're talking, you know, about Trump and the role of the president. Isn't one of the the subjects that we're not really addressing is the power of the corporations who, dare I say it, are probably more powerful than the president himself? Absolutely. I mean, think about this. not just I mean, the corporations and, and social media. Why was he so detested? And it's just very simple mathematics. Donald Trump was utterly detested by every element of, of the elite because nobody owned him. He, he, he'd never, you know, been funded, had never had donors from big pharma, from big tech. He wasn't in the pocket of the unions. Everybody hated him. That's why he could come out as a Republican president, constantly hammering big pharma, saying, what, what, how much is insulin? How much are you charging Americans for insulin? That's a bloody crime. And he went to war with pharma. <laughs> That's not a popular thing to do as a politician. So, you know, corporations, of course, hate populism because they're not national entities. IBM isn't, nas- isn't a national entity. Nike, with its sweatshops in Xinjiang, uh, China with its slave labor, you know, trainer makers, they're not an American company anymore. So you're absolutely right. But even more dangerous is Silicon Valley and Palo Alto. Your viewers may not be familiar, but think of this one thing. Mark Zuckerberg, the founder, the CEO of Facebook, through his NGO, dropped $400 million in the last election, not as campaign contributions to candidates, but to local governments 
to help control how the elections are actually run to quote-unquote train election officials and, for example, once the governors changed the laws unilaterally, to put ballot drop boxes where? In Democrat stronghold districts. Almost half a billion dollars of private money into the actual running of elections. That should be a crime. I don't care who you're voting for, but when Facebook and when, fa- when, when Twitter... The, the oldest newspaper in America is the New York Post, okay? It was, it was, it was uh, founded by one of the founding fathers. When the New York Post gets the access to Hunter Biden's laptop, which is his laptop, because when your lawyers demand to get it back from the, the, the repair shop owner, that means it's Hunter Biden's laptop. When the story of the, the emails with Russia, the Barisma no-show job for $83,000 a month, the fact that his company was in bed with the chief spy of communist China, and we have Hunter Biden's voicemail where he admits it on the laptop. When that story blew in the New York Post before the election and Jack Dorsey made it impossible to post it on Twitter. If you posted it, it was deleted. The New York Times own post of the story was memory hold like Orwell. Then, then I don't know which is worse, big corporations or Twitter and Facebook. This is very, very disturbing. And of course, none of these people believe in America first or American jobs or the working class. They hate the working class. Which then goes back to my point is then how do you stand up to these people when they've got such money such power. Doesn't that therefore mean that they can't be controlled? It's too late. Uh, Look, I'm an American now by choice. And uh, even before that, it was part of my character. But I I do believe it's a fundamental characteristic of most Americans. We're we're optimists by by dint of how we were created. I mean, remember, in 1776, uh, the the British colonists, only two and a half percent of whom actually fought the British. It was it wasn't the color. It was less than three percent actually fought the Redcoats. They took on the biggest empire the world had ever seen. I mean, the Persians were pikers. The the Roman Empire were amateurs by comparison to the British Empire, uh, on which the sun truly never set. So the idea that a, a bunch of ragtag crazies could could defeat the the British Empire is kind of in the gene code of Americans. We we don't know the word surrender. So the idea that we're just gonna say, okay, that's it. We're we're just heading on the the slow road to Venezuela. I, I don't think that's what most Americans uh, are, are in for. And what what the beauty of our system is the electoral college that we have this. It's not 50 percent plus one. It is a weighted system where, the, you know, the smallest state like Rhode Island has almost as much power as Texas, that, that the, the electoral college system for choosing the president isn't just, you know, the majority can dictate and then the, the minority can go to hell. So we have certain safeties. Uh, I have issues with the status of the Supreme Court, the role of, of judges today who are either activists or cowards. But when it comes to corporations... I, I'm not prepared to, to say, okay, that's it, it's over. I, I'm just not prepared to say that. And I truly believe when you get out of places like DC, when you get out of LA, New York, Boston, the majority of Americans are, are, are not defeatist and, and they will stand up. Remember, it's 74 million people. You know, Biden may or may not have won, quote unquote. But Donald Trump received more votes than any incumbent president in the history of America. 
Now, that's something to be reckoned with. If, if so, I, I'm talking to a lot of people, people with big pockets. If somebody was smart enough to create one platform that was a Twitter, a Facebook, an email service, a, a news aggregator like Drudge before Drudge went insane, that actually catered to people who believed in America, that believed that nation states and the Westphalian system are good, you maybe actually have an audience, potential audience, of 74 million buyers. That is real power. You've just got to invest. You've got to build it. And you know why I'm optimistic? And this isn't a cop-out. I truly believe this. Every day, you guys may not see this, but every day I come into the studio and there's another viral video of some mom in New York, some teacher in Virginia, standing up at a local school board and saying, this bigotry, this critical race theory, this veiled Marxism, we're not going to let you indoctrinate our kids every day. There's a new one today. So that gives me hope, guys. Well, Seb, you mentioned critical race theory, and this is something that conservatives like you talk about a lot at the moment. It's also something that concerns me, uh, or at least I, I don't claim to really know exactly the, the nuances of critical race theory. I just think uh, teaching people that some races are better than others is probably not a good idea because, like you, I've read a little bit of history. But um, tell me, what is critical race theory before we get into talking about it? All right. Well, the, the, the formal answer is it's a it's a it's a way of looking at justice in the world that was named by Derek Bell. Uh, it's interesting when when we won the Cold War in 1989, when the West won and the you know the East Germans took down the Berlin Wall. The very same year, there was a conference where Derek Bell, a, a radical uh, law professor from Harvard coined the term critical race theory, but it's built upon a much, much longer progression uh, that, that is basically the, the inculcation of Marxist thought into academia in general. So let, let, let's, let's just, I mean, you, your viewers may know this, but let's unpack it for a second. Uh, communism was meant to create revolutions around the world because there's an there's a, a inherent tension in, in all societies of the oppressed and the oppressor, the working class and the capitalist. Uh, Marx stole from Hegel and he took his version of the dialectic and said, there's, there's this material version of the dialectic and sooner or later the tension between the oppressed and the oppressor is going to explode in a revolution and that's when we get justice in a classless society. Well, the, the sad thing is for the communists, it was a failure. It was garbage. It was false science. The only place where it could work were backward feudal states like Tsarist Russia or, or, or China in 1948 after the Kuomintang, where you didn't have a strong middle class that was robust and had Judeo-Christian values and said, this, is, this philosophy is cra crackers. I'm not going to subscribe to it. In, in robust Western societies with a strong middle class and, and Christian or Judeo-Christian values, they needed a new, they needed a new angle of attack. And this is where the new left and the neo-Marxism comes in, built upon uh, Antonio Gramsci's concepts. There's this crippled Italian communist in one of Mussolini's prison cells, writes his political work saying, in a, in a developed society, you can't have a revolution of the working class. The middle class is too robust. So you can't, go frontally against them, you've got to undermine them from the inside. And it's the long march through the institutions. This is where the Frankfurt School, Adorno, Marcuse, and so forth come, where they say, you've got to capture the culture. How do you capture the culture? You've got to take the class-based tension 
and you flip it and you say, what are the, what are the other ways we can engender tension in a robust society with middle class? If it's not going to be class, it's going to be sexual identity. It's going to be race. And this is where critical race theory comes in. Critical race theory says that oppression is endemic in Western civilization. Even if they don't know it, white men, especially white heterosexual men, are inherently oppressive. And there has to be a a, a forced redress. This is not equality, but equity. The system has to push down the oppressor constantly so that the, the, the minorities can find their, their just place. That's really, you know, the, the concept of critical race theory. That, that's, uh, I mean, it, it is the antithesis of Martin Luther King. It's saying skin color is actually connected to attributes that you cannot ever get rid of, and especially the white world is guilty. That's critical race theory, and it's now very, it's pervasive through U.S. schools and is being injected into the new, the U.S. military by the uh, new administration. And Seb, you know, we're talking about critical race theory, and you say it's being injected into schools, but as a theory, surely it should be allowed to be taught in colleges as a theory. Like yeah, you would but, study a range of other theories. Like common right, yeah. but, but But we're not talking about college. We're, we're talking about pre-K. We're talking about kindergarten. I mean, th- this is the shocking story. And, it, and it's, not st- it's not taught as a theory amongst other theories. It is t- taught as the worldview. So there are stories of, of kids in very, very well-to-do posh families in Manhattan where this stuff is out of control in the private schools. I mean, really, uh, really sad stories of these kids coming home and saying to their mom, mommy, am I a racist because I'm white? That, that's, that's not the teaching of a theory. That is indoctrination. When, when you have people being shamed in, you know, in front of their class, having to stand up, um, because you're white and apologize for slavery in 2021. That's not, you know, teaching the difference between neoliberal, neoclassicist theories of international relations. That is, that is Orwellian North Korean indoctrination. This is the self-criticism of, of the Maoists that we saw with the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, where you, you have to publicly shame yourself in front of others because of your skin color. So, Teaching as a theory, yeah, that would that would be not an issue. But when a six-year-old is being told, you need to apologize because you're white, that's indoctrination. It is. Uh, look, all of that is abhorrent to me. Um, but does it, would you not say that, obviously, look, everything you've said about the history of this, I completely agree with. The, 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 they kind of understood at one point that, you can't get the working class to rise up if they think that someday they'll be wealthy too, which is the, the, the <laughs> essence of the American dream, right? right? You can't get them to eat the rich if they all think that someday they may well be rich because they right. live in a society where that's possible. Um, but do you not also think that whether we, we can disagree about or agree, frankly, whether critical race theory makes sense or not, whether it's accurate, the desire for some kind of what you described as equity, where you press down on one group to elevate another, comes from the fact that the the Western world 
is unequal and there is racial inequality that is baked into the cake of the, the story of our countries. And we see it in this country where communities from certain parts of the world struggle. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that's to do with skin color. There are different things going on and, and we've talked about them on our show, as you know. But the fact is that an unequal society, which, which claims to be just and fair, uh, isn't that. And so the desire to equalize is sort of coming from a good place, even though I agree with you, I don't think the outcomes are going to be anything like what these people are suggesting. I'm kind of, I'm, I don't know if you're being a devil's advocate. I, I'm kind, I kind of shocked, give, given, given your family background, that, that you've even raised that. I mean, look, you've had J to the B to the ever-loving P on, on your show. And, you know, if he's the, not the most eloquent uh, um, person on this issue... Okay, there, there is no utopia on earth. I get it, fine. Um, but who's going to decide who gets the bigger slice of the pie? And who's going to decide, well, well, now it's okay. Now blacks are all right, uh, or, or yellow, or whatever, I have got enough. Who's going to decide that? And me, so I, my, my background, I'm a mutt from Central Europe, okay? My name is Polish. My parents were Hungarian. My mom's got a little bit of Turkish in her. There's a little bit of Jewish somewhere, possibly. Uh, I was born in the UK, and I'm an immigrant to the United States, but I'm white. So do, do, do I have to be punished? Does some of my income have to go to a black person who was born here, whose parents were, were Jamaican and were never slaves? You see that you know the the, the 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 absurdity. This becomes a Monty Python skit after a while. It's 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 the equality of outcomes versus the equality of opportunity. And and look, I, I go back to growing up in West London. I grew up in Ealing. Ealing back in the seventies was one of the most diverse parts of London because you know after World War Two, members of the Free Polish Army were given housing there. I went to school with my mates. Were you know my best mate was a Pakistani. The other guy was Polish, uh, German. There was only one kid out of six hundred. One kid who who could prove he was actually English. English going back a few generations. And and the school bus driver on the number sixty five bus was a Jamaican with a thick Jamaican accent. We all thought all of us were Brits, right? And I think that's the way it should be. The idea that I or my dad, a refugee from Hungary, should be punished in favor of the black bus driver's future, that's, that's insanity. And at the end of the day, uh, let me be clear. Have you guys been to America? Yeah. Yeah, we both. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've lived in England. I've lived for 15 years in a post-communist country after the war fell. I worked for the first freely elected uh, conservative government in Hungary. I've traveled the world from Japan to Africa, you name it. And I can tell you right now, hand on heart, hand on the good book, there is no nation um, l uh, less racist than America. The idea that a black kid from a single mother household could become the president of the United States is all the proof you need. If you work your ass off, you will be successful in this country. You may not be a neuroscientist like Ben Carson, a black member of the Trump administration who was the first neuro brain surgeon to separate conjoined twins in America, who likewise grew up in a single mother household where his mother couldn't read 
but he ends up in the cabinet of the president. Uh, you know, think of this. I'm a flipping immigrant. I only became an immigrant in 2012. And five years later, I'm walking around the White House as deputy assistant to the president. It still blows my mind. If I hadn't gone to Harrow or Eton, I wouldn't be doing that in the UK in 10 Downing Street. I know that. I know if you've got the wrong name, if your name is Mohammed and you apply for a white collar job in Marseille, you are screwed in France. I've seen real racism in the countries I've lived in. So the idea that we have a problem, we are, you know, this is the only nation that went to war with itself to end bigotry. More people died in the civil war in America than in all the other wars combined. You combine the deaths from World War I, World War II and Vietnam, it doesn't come close. 600,000 Americans died to end slavery in the civil war. And some shit at the New York Times is going to lecture me on my whiteness being a guilt I have to pay off to somebody whose melanin level in their skin is a little bit darker than mine. That way lies tyranny. Because who's going to to decide who gets what? It's the ultimate question of communism. Who gets to decide and who gets to decide, okay, now you've had enough reparations and we can all live happily. I saw it myself. I went to Harvard in the 90s and I saw these kids who came on affirmative action to Harvard. They couldn't cut it. They felt awkward and they created tension with the, the people who were maybe Asian, who'd worked their tails off to get into Harvard and saw this person walking on a ticket because he's the right skin color. That way you actually engender racial tension. You don't solve anything. So, no, I, I, I agree with, you know, Jordan Peterson and everybody else who, who's looked at this for decades. It's, it's equality of opportunity and it cannot be equality of outcome because who's going to enforce that? And I agree with you, Seb, that it does need to be equality of opportunity. But the problem is when you have a society like America, there isn't equality of opportunity, is there? I mean, let's be fair. Why not? If Obama can make it to president, if Ben Carson can make it into the cabinet as black kids from single parent households, where, 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 where is the systemic lack of opportunity? Well, for, for example, if someone grows up incredibly poor in a deprived neighborhood with high crime rates, that's going to be far more difficult for them, especially if they go to a school that is failing, that has got literacy rates through the floor, numeracy rates through the floor. Right. It's, look, as, as a former teacher, it, that kid has got it far tougher than somebody else who goes to a very prestigious private school in Manhattan and gets, you know, and, and, <laughs> makes, what, and what, you know, what, it, what, it's very easy for them. Not very easy, much easier for them. Right. And, and, and what has happened in the last 60 years since the Great Society, what was created? We've sunk literally trillions of dollars into those inner cities, into those ghettos. With what effect? The, the average poverty rate in America is exactly the same as it was under LBJ. Exactly the same, despite the trillions of dollars sunken into them. Why? Because a culture of dependency was created. And the teachers union said, what do you mean you want to have a voucher system where a black mother can choose where their kid goes to school? We don't want vouchers 
voucher systems. We want state schools based upon the union precincts and you go to the flipping school that's in your district. What we've created is, we, what, what is the answer to these things? Well, Seb, let me interrupt you there uh, very respectfully because all of the failures of the left we've covered, as you well know, on our right. show quite thoroughly. But but here's what I'm asking you, and I think this is actually an opportunity uh, for your side of the conversation to come up with some answers. What is your offering? What is your solution to some of those problems? When Francis talks about, and you, you know this full well, that in certain neighborhoods in America, kids can't read at the age of 15 and they can't write yeah. and they, they, they don't have certain role models. They don't have access to opportunities. And by the time they're 18, there's no way they're getting a job because they've got a criminal record and they've got no understanding of how to conduct themselves and whatever. So what is the conservative answer to that lack of equality of opportunity that we all so much believe in? I, I can't do it better than my, my Salem radio colleague, Larry Elder. It, it's, you know, the, the success in life, whatever your skin color is, very, very simple. Finish school and get married and don't have kids before you're married. If, if we, I mean, the, the fact that 70% of black children are born to fatherless homes, that's the problem, not how much money is spent in inner city Chicago. The problem is the role of faith, of tradition, of, of family values. Larry's absolutely right. You've got, to, you've got to break the unions. You've got to give parents the power to choose where their kids go to school. Schools have got to be competitive. And we've got to have this de- disincentivization of people to be unmarried and have kids. If you're in the city of Chicago, you're going to get more money from the state if you're not married and have kids from five different guys. H- how is that good for the children that you're having? It's well, not. I, God knows I agree with you. And since you bring up Larry Elder, the one thing that I think makes him an outlier in this conversation and, and an issue that we agree with him very strongly on is the war on drugs. Uh, I think that's been a huge contributor to this conversation. I, I, and I'm, I'm sorry to see that not many conservatives want to talk about it. What is your take on, on that side of it? Uh, you're not going to like it. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a complete purist on this stuff. Uh, I've seen enough. Dam- I, I've seen relatives who may have just done, you know, soft drugs who've thrown away their lives. Uh, I'm not a big. I, I think. I think the 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 criminalization of the user is not the way to go. I think we have to try and get people off drugs as much as we can. But I think the, the I'm not a libertarian. I, I think libertarians, uh, it's one of the dumbest philosophies out there because it, it doesn't uh, factor in secondary and tertiary consequences of, of the libertine lifestyle. Uh, you, you've got to have, you know, it's, it's the broken window policy for me, right? You, you know, a little infraction eventually leads to a large infraction. Uh, and at the end of the day, I'm, I'm I'm a purist when it comes to drugs, although I do think the way we have spent money on the war of drugs is absolutely insane. People should be helped. But if you're a dealer who's destroying lives, you should be banged up for life as far as I'm concerned. But see, Seb, this is where I, the reason I really admire elements of thinking on the right, and this is why I talk about me being a centrist, because I I really am interested in a lot of thoughts on the left and the right, because I think both have some good ideas. The, the one thing that I always admire about the right is the pragmatism. It's not, it's not ideology first, as it often is on the left. It's what works. 
And we know this thing, the war on drugs does not work, right? right? And that's what I, and my argument for ending the war on drugs is nothing to do with libertarianism, which is not an ideology I particularly share. It's to do with the fact that I don't think it's working and I think you need to do something else. Uh, and so I, my approach isn't to just say, you know, take heroin, whatever. It's to get people the help they need to not be addicts, right. but also to allow responsible adults to put in their body, frankly, what they choose to if they're being responsible about it and they don't need the help. My, my, my you know, it's not something I've spent a lot of time looking at. I've never taken any drugs in my life, so it's not something that I, I've seen others and, and it's been horrifying, you know, what's happened to them. But I think the answer is you, it cannot be solved by government, right? Th th that's the bottom line. It's got to be solved by private initiative, by uh, people, organizations, churches, uh, social workers helping, but not government. And if it's the it's if it's a dealer, if it's hard drugs, that remains a crime. But the end user, no, those people need to be helped to create a a a a. a to become functioning individuals. It's like, it's like mental health. If you guys haven't been to America recently, DC is now a tent city of homeless people. 90% of them are, are, have mental issues. In Los Angeles, uh, in, in San Francisco, this is a massive problem. Why? Because we have said in those municipalities, their civil rights trounce everything else unless they're actively killing people or hurting themselves, you can't give them any assistance. So people spend decades on the street mumbling to themselves. I don't think that's good for them. I think it's actually inhuman and we need to help them, but not governments. We have to allow private organizations to help them, but we don't because we say, hey, civil rights, let them inject whatever they want, let them have a shit on the sidewalk, that's freedom. I, I, I don't think it's good for them, and I don't think it's good for society. Yeah, it's a very good point, Seb. Uh, one thing that I wanted to move the conversation on before the interview ended, it go, what is the future of the Republican Party and what is the future of conservatism? Because we saw with Trump, he moved the, conserv the, the conversation in one particular direction. He changed the Republican Party forever. What do you think is going to be the future of republicanism and conservatism in general? I don't think these words function anymore. I think the taxonomy of conservative, Republican, Labour, Democrat, I, I think these labels are bust, that they're, they're broken. Uh, as I said in an event last night, you know, Donald Trump in 2016, he took the political rule book, he ripped it up, shredded it, lit it alight, uh, buried it and jumped up and down on it. So the political landscape, especially after Brexit, after Modi, after, uh, you know, um, Donald Trump is, is, is completely different. It is a race between two forms of populism. It is the populism of those who believe in their countries, whether it's the UK, whether it's India, whether it's America. And it is a populism based upon uh, global elites, where, where Bernie Sanders and AOC says, we've got to save the planet. Uh, we've got to take control of information supplies. Social media has to ban certain kinds of people. Certain kinds of comedians can't tell certain kinds of jokes because we are in a global fight to, for social justice. That's how I see, you know, the, the future of politics. It's going to be new labels, new actors. And I think the biggest change is, um, and, and I see this coming up in the next election, I think uh, successful national politicians, especially in America, will not come from the political establishment. 
It's going to have to be outsiders. I'm not talking about Oprah, but I'm talking about, you know, it's got to be celebrities who are untainted by having been politicians who can actually ride that wave of populism, whether it's coming from a traditional right or a traditional left. I think that's the biggest impact on politics writ large. Who is going to be the 2024 Republican nominee? Donald Trump. You don't think he's going to... How will he be then? 82, Seb? He just turned uh, 75 last week. Okay. Okay, so not not as old as you thought. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I saw him last week. I went to New York. Um, Before I uh, I saw him, I I publicly said I give it 95% chance that he's running. After I saw him, I'm going to give it a 98% chance that he's running. Um, if he runs, he gets the nomination. And if the disastrous policies of the last four months continue for the next three years, he's going to stroll back into the White House if if we can have some um, transparency on the way we run elections in America. And you don't think that the events of what happened on that day in January uh, have tainted his legacy at all? No, I, I, I think they, they could have if Nancy Pelosi hadn't tried to impeach him a second time after he left office. With that incredibly stupid move, Nancy Pelosi uh, allowed him back into the political arena because it was clear that they were trying to persecute a man who'd left political office. So he was in trouble um, uh, before that, but when she tried to kick him out of the White House after he'd left the White House, he was back in action. And and sure enough, in in, uh, 12 days... He's got his first rally, so he's going to be out doing his MAGA rallies. Uh, So we'll do some questions for locals in a minute, but I I want to stick with the Donald Trump point for a second. He obviously enjoys tremendous popularity with a very large section of the American public to this day. That's very clear. Do you think that is because people are desperate and they don't see someone who still, still don't see anyone else who represents them? Or do you think he actually delivered for them in his first term? Well, I, I think, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a policy wonk like I am, uh, you know, you, you look at what he delivered from crushing ISIS, securing the wall, getting serious on Russia, biggest economy. Wait, sorry, what do you ever- mean about securing the wall? Did, did he finish the wall? No, no. I mean, uh, the, the, the illegal immigrants. We, we got illegal immigration down to a trickle, especially after COVID, even without the wall, because we had something called Title 42 that meant because of the COVID infection, if you cross the border illegally, we could deport you straight away. So he had powers under, under COVID that we'd never had before, which meant we had, we had a, a, a fraction of the, of the illegal crossings by, by October of last year. But no, he, he didn't get to finish the wall. So, so getting a grip on illegal migration, crushing ISIS, uh, lowest unemployment for blacks and Hispanics since, since record keeping began. So, I mean, just on a policy platform, amazing success. But I think really why, why um, he's going to be popular again is what you said at the beginning, uh, Constantin. He's a berserker and people are fed up. But people just don't trust the establishment, whether they're a, a pipe fitter in, in, you know, in Long Island, whether they're a farmer in, you know, in, 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 in Texas, or, or, or whether they're a working class guy who's kind of sick with what he's seen happen to his family in the last 40 years. They want berserkers to break some China. And Donald Trump is good at that. Yeah, you are right. We will see what happens, Seb. Uh, Seb, uh, how about we do this deal? If he runs again and you're in the White House, uh, 
we really appreciate coming on. Give me an hour of your time. I will destroy the war on drugs with facts and logic, <laughs> and you can sell it to the president. How about that? Uh, why don't Why don't you come on? We can. Do, I'll, 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 I will virtually shake your hand on that now. But why don't you guys come on my radio show or TV show? And we'll start talking about it. We'd love to. Absolutely. Listen, uh, we've got uh, some locals' question to ask you, but also we've got our final question, as you know, which is always: What is the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be? Courage. Uh, it it came to me in the last nine months of, of doing my show that it doesn't really matter what, what the issue is that, that's dearest to your heart, whether it's illegal migration, uh, freedom of speech, cancel culture, here in America, the Second Amendment, or whatever it is. Um, the only thing we're lacking, really, in a shocking extent, is courage. And, and I saw this here in, in this country, the, the, the willingness to, to genuflect at the altar of Dr. Fauci and everybody else and Neil Ferguson, these doomsaying, you know, you know, cretins who were unelected when we're talking about a disease that had a 0.4% mortality rate uh, in which children were practically invulnerable. And I saw it today. I almost said something. I was walking my dog past the playground and this... You know, handsome black guys walking his daughter and he's got no mask, but he's got a mask on his kid. And I felt like saying, I mean, so have you looked at the statistics? Are you insane? This is child abuse. So courage, courage, courage. It's like Solzhenitsyn said, that the biggest thing you can do for the dictators is to not cleave to the truth and to hide the truth. Every single one of your view. I mean, that's why you're watching this show. But the truth is more important than ever, and every single one of you matters. So the truth and then a little pet request that I always tell people, guys, read books. Nobody reads books anymore. I love podcasts. I love social media. But we need to get back to knowledge that has been tested, proven true. So get back to the old school. As a teacher, Francis, you know, you know this, the value of an hour a day of reading a book with real pages is just gold. Absolutely true. Seb, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we're going to do our locals questions just after this. Uh, where is the best place for people to find you if they want to find you, if they want to see your content? Uh, go to my webpage, sebgorka.com. That's S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A, sebgorka.com. But I'm on all the platforms, Seb Gorka on Twitter, Sebastian underscore Gorka on Instagram, Facebook, you name it. Um, just look up Sebastian or Seb Gorka and you'll find me. And, and the TV show you can watch for free on Newsmax. Uh, download the Newsmax app and it's the Gorka Reality Check every Sunday. Seb, thanks for coming on and thank you all for watching this fascinating conversation. I say I've really enjoyed it, playing a bit of devil's advocate <laughs> with someone who knows how to do that and, and play along with it. Uh, thank you for watching. We will see you very soon with another brilliant episode or Raw Show. And as you can see, some pretty serious people watch the Raw Shows. Make sure you tune in as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And don't forget, keto is for slags. Thank you very much and goodbye, guys.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.